Welcome to Evangelistic Center Church. Well, uh, this is one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, we have been for a number of years, the month of June, uh, we start, we call it the God is for you series. Uh, we do that because of what the word says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, that that if God be for you, who can be against you? And so uh, a number of years ago, I think the only year we missed since I've been here was the uh, COVID year, and we didn't do it that year. I think, I think we skipped that year. Uh, anyway, but we are going to, for every Sunday in June, we're going to be doing the God is for you series. Uh, and so it won't always just be Romans 8.31, but it will be messages that um, teach us the meaning and the story, the lesson uh, the powerful message that God has for us in Romans 8.30, and we're going to be talking about that idea for the month of June, and then we'll pick back up in James in July. So that's what we're going to be doing. Um, and so uh, I'm excited to be here today. I hope that you will plan on being here every week. I know it's kind of vacation season, and maybe you have to be gone, but make a plan to be here. Uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Um, the older I get and the more that I study the Word, the more that I feel like I understand God's promises. Can anybody relate to that? I think some of it's because you've traveled farther, right? And the farther you get in life, you learn things. You have wisdom that you didn't have before. My dad would, no matter what I say, dad would always say, well, wait till you're 40 or we'll wait till you're 50. So the other day he said that to me and I said, you've been telling me wait till I'm 50 for 30 years and I'm 50. So how come I still don't know anything? And he says, we'll just wait till you're 75. So uh, at some point I'm going to know something. And I, he knows I'm just kidding. Me and dad, we've laughed about that before, but... Uh, for most of my life, I, I feel like I've learned more about God's promises, and, and this is how I would say it. I think I viewed God's promises, and, and I'm going to go ahead and challenge you. I'm going to jump out of this on this message. I'm going to challenge you from the beginning. So if something I say to you right now doesn't seem like you think that's, that it fits, just ride the train with me just a little bit longer. But most of my life, I viewed God's promises as promises to give me stuff. And you may say, well, I've never thought that, but I think most of us, if we think back through our life, that's sort of how we viewed God is everything in the Bible we read is promises to give me stuff. And I didn't always limit the promises of God to monetary things or possessions. That wasn't always it. It was a lot of the time, but it wasn't always it. Um, but I guess the way I would explain it to you is I thought most of the promises in the Word were guarantees that I would always have a good job, that I would always be well, that good stuff would just happen to me all the time. That's what I believed. And I'm not going to rehash my story, but you all know my story. And when in 2013 that didn't happen, I can remember really being stuck and in, in, at a loss for words and challenged because things weren't going out the way that I had planned. Now, I want to be clear before you start throwing stuff at me. I want to be clear. I do believe that God has promised good things to his children. How many of you believe that? I do believe that he has promised good things to his children. And I'm going to start out by giving you a few before I actually get into God is for you. Here's some things I think God's promised to us. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins. How many of you glad that God forgives sin? See, that's a promise, and you can take that to the bank. Psalm 37, uh, it tells us that the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. And though he may stumble, he will not fall. That's a good promise, isn't it? I mean, we can hold on to that promise. How about Matthew chapter 11? It says, Come to me all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Don't you find in times of stress and strain and trial and difficulty that you can find peace in the Word, you can find peace in the presence of the Lord? I believe that's what He promises us in Matthew 11. John 8 says, If the Son sets you free, 
you are free indeed. That's a good promise. Anybody in here been set free? Good. Good. Amen. They've been set free. One more. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Philippians 4.19. My God will meet all your needs according to His riches in glory. Everything that you need, He has promised to provide for us. So, I wanted to read those to you because I wouldn't want anybody to leave here and say, well, Pastor said God doesn't promise us good things. That's not what I mean. But uh, I believe with all my heart that God has promised us good things. But I've come to learn as I've gotten older that what He hasn't promised is that where everybody's going to be rich, everybody's going to have perfect health, nobody's ever going to be sad, there's not ever going to be any trouble. I don't find that He promised me that. I can't find that he ever said to the disciples, you know what, if you have enough faith, your life is going to be awesome. As a matter of fact, if you remember, especially when he was talking to Peter, you remember what he told Peter after Peter denied him and he came back and and, uh, Peter says, I'm going to go with you no matter what, I'm going everywhere you go. I'm going to go. And Jesus tells him, there's a day coming that they're going to take you somewhere you don't want to go and they're going to do to you something you don't want done. Y'all remember that? And that was alluding to the fact that Peter would ultimately be martyred for his faith. At another time, the disciples said, Jesus, we're going wherever you go. And he says, wait a minute. Even foxes have nests and birds have... Foxes have nests. Foxes have dens, birds have nests. But the Son of Man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head. Y'all remember that story? So he never promises us that everything was... that our life was going to be free of sorrow. And the older you get, you find out that, well, really life isn't always free of sorrow. But I think for the first 30 years of my life, that's sort of how I I believed the Word. And what happened to me believing that way is it affected how I read and how I interpreted all of Scripture. And and I I don't have time to give you an example, but if you'll think about that, the next time that you open the Bible, think about the way that you consider God's promises when you read the Word. And I I think maybe you'll start to see what God's really trying to teach us in Scripture. Let me give you just an example of what I mean about the way that I think I misinterpreted things. And and I I know I may be challenging some of what you believe this morning, but I'm doing this because I believe this is what God has put in my heart to teach you. Mark chapter 11, 24 says, and most of you can quote this, but it says that everything you pray and ask for, believe that you received it and it will be yours. Is that what it says? That's not a trick question. That's what it says. Amen? Amen. Everything you pray and ask for, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And so what I took that verse to mean, and maybe you didn't do this, maybe this is just Noah, but I believe that verse meant that no matter what I prayed about, no matter what I asked God for, I'd get it. No matter what it was, that I would get it. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I bet some of you believe that same way. That Well, that says right there that whatever we believe that we'll get. The problem with that is that when you read Mark eleven twenty four and you take it out of the whole counsel of God, when you read one verse in Scripture and you don't consider it in light of the entire gospel, then you believe things that aren't exactly true. But when you dig in and mine the depths of Scripture for truth, you'll discover that what God has promised us in Mark eleven twenty four. You'll discover that God has promised that anything we ask for in accordance with His will that we'll have. And I'm gonna, I'm, let me prove that to you in case, you in case you're feeling like sending me an email already. Let me prove that to you. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Listen to these verses. This is the confidence that we have before Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we, He hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of Him. So I wanted to set the stage for God is for you for this series to talk to you about promises. 
Because when you begin to mine Scripture for God's promises, you have to consider the promises in light of the whole Word. You can't pick and choose verses here and there and build a doctrine out of the verses that you chose and make them say what you want them to say. Because what happens is then you begin to believe things about God that's not true and you set yourself up for disappointment. See, it makes a whole lot of difference in how you and I pray when we understand in 1 John 5 that when I pray that I need to be praying according to His will. And you know how you pray according to His will? You listen to the Holy Spirit and you allow the Holy Spirit to direct your paths and to direct your thoughts and to direct your wants. And you pray with the Word of God in front of you and you allow the promises in Scripture to permeate your life. And when you begin to pray God's promises, guess what happens? You get what you ask for. Does that make sense? You get what you ask for. And so that's what's happening here is that we, we pray according to His will and when we hear those words according to His will and we begin to pray, then we can understand the nature of God's promises as revealed to us in His Word. Now, the truth that I'm trying to home in on this is that if God is for us, who is against us? And I want to read the passage with you starting at verse 31 and then I think what I'm telling you will make sense here at the end. Romans 8, 31-39. It says this, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How we did not also with Him grant us everything. Aren't these good promises? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one that justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long and we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful passage. And what we need to do with this passage is we need to find out what God is saying to us in this passage. What exactly is it that God has promised us in Romans 8? And really, I think it's a fairly straightforward promise because He says, if God is for us, who is against us? That's what He says in verse 31. And if you... If you look up the, the Greek wording of that phrase, you could really translate the word if as since. Because there isn't any doubt that God is for us. Amen? So how you could really read that verse would be, since God is for us, who could be against us? Since God is for you, who can be against you? Do you see the difference? And so we figure out, well, what does it mean that He's for us? I'm reading Noah that he says he's for us, but what does that mean? What is that promise trying to teach me? Well, in, in just the first four, five verses, verse 31 through 35, you read seven affirming questions that illustrate God's sovereign promises to you and to me. Let me read you those questions. And if you've got your Bible, you can follow along. It says, well, what are we to say about these things? If God's for us, who is against us? Well, that's question one. If God's for us, who's against us? Then notice the next question he asks. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? Okay, so He's promised that He would be for me. 
And now He's promised that He will not be against me. Now He says that with Him He will grant me everything. Now look at the next question. Well, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? So you notice that these are all questions, but the questions are being asked with the answer already known. We know that He's for us because He sacrificed His Son to save you. So who can bring an accusation? Who can condemn? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then the last question, after asking who can separate us, then He asks it this way. And to me, He's asking this kind of like you ask your kids stuff that you know the answer to. And you parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? When you ask things that you know the answer to, and it usually it sounds something like this. What did I say about that? And you know they know, right? Well, my kids, I did have a time that I would make my kids repeat back to me what I said. So any of you new parents or you're going to be parents, that works great. Because you say, okay, what did I just say? And half the time they say, I don't know. So I'm not going to let you say I don't know today. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now listen, now listen to the next question. He answers that question with a question. Can affliction, so I'll ask you, can affliction separate me from the love of Christ? Can distress or persecution separate me from the love of Christ? How about famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any of those things separate me from Jesus? So what Paul's doing is he's asking the reader this question so that he can illustrate don't miss this, so that he can illustrate the lengths to which God has gone to be for his children. He has gone to incredible lengths to be for his children. So to be for you means that he's on your side. And so when Paul says, well, then who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question because Paul knows the answer. And he says, if God's on your side, it doesn't matter who or what would oppose you because God will deliver you from it all. The promise here in Romans 8 is not a promise of life without pain, nor does it mean that nobody will ever be against you in the natural, because people will. And unless you've been living under a rock, you know that every single day somebody's against you. Is that right? Every day. If you go to work, if you're in traffic, if you're at the grocery store, if you're raising children, if your wife puts something up, you ask her not to put up, something is against you, right? Every day. That last thing never happens at my house. Every day you face those kind of things. But here's what the promise is. The promise means that for the believer, no one, and make sure you get this, no one can successfully oppose your salvation and the ultimate promise of eternity with Christ. No one can challenge that. See, what you have to get out of Romans 8 is that when you have turned your life over to Christ and the Holy Spirit has indwelt you and, and you become born again, there is no devil in hell. There's no coronavirus or government or any other thing. Whatever you think is against you, nothing, church, can separate you from salvation with God. Nothing can. That's what it means that He's for you. He's willing to go to such great lengths to save you and to rescue you. And if He goes to those great lengths, then why would you and I ever believe that anyone or anything could take that away from us? If God has gone so far to give His Son, why would anybody believe that it could be taken from us? I'm going to look again at Romans at verse 34 of our text. Listen to this in light of what I've told you. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. 
See, this promise, when you read this promise, you have to read it with the context of salvation and you being securely saved. Because really what he's asking is, can anybody condemn you? And your response would be, well, Christ is the one who died, but not only did He die, but He was raised again. And, and I, got more, I got more evidence, church, that He's for you, because not only did He die and was He raised, but now He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and He's praying for you. So the gist of Romans 8, all that Romans 8 is trying to teach us is that your salvation has been secured by Jesus Himself. That's all He's done for you is He chose to die. Now see, I read you a little bit ago, I read you those questions about that Paul asked in those eight or nine verses that we read. I want to read those again, but I want you to read them in light of the promise of salvation. I want to go through the same thing we just did, but now I want you to see them interpreting them with the eyes of salvation. Now listen, he says this, How will He not also with Him grant us everything? So now let me ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud, but what has He granted to you? Well, He's granted to you eternal life through Christ. Amen? That's what you've been granted. Now here's the next question. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Now does anybody in this church, anybody know who the accuser is? The Bible calls Him the accuser of the brethren. The devil is the accuser, but guess what? All that he can do is accuse because your debt has been paid. All he can do is... is shout uh, to pipe off at the mouth. He can just get lippy all he wants and accuse you about whatever he wants to accuse. But i got news for you. Your debt has been paid and it cannot be taken back. Then he says this. Okay, well who's the one that condemns? Well, so I can ask you, well who condemns? Who is the only person that can send you to hell. There's only one person that can send you to hell. Who is it? That's, who, that's all. Jesus can send you to hell and no one else can. But guess what? If you know Him today, then you are not condemned and nobody should presume that they could condemn you. Then He asked this question, well, who can separate us from the love of Christ? So I'll just ask you again, can anyone or anything come and take away your salvation? Can anything do it? What about depth or height or infirmities or perilous or nakedness or sword? Can anything remove you? I used, to, I used to say it kind of in fun. I'm not really trying to be funny, but I always used to say neither depth nor height nor things present nor things to come nor kryptonite nor anything else. Nor anything else. That's why he's asking these questions. He's asking them so that the Romans that read this letter, they'd begin to say, now wait a minute. Didn't He, he granted us everything? You mean... The devil's the accuser, but, but I can't be accused because I'm part of his kingdom. And, and the one that condemns, well, he died for me, so he's not condemning me. And then, now wait a minute, Paul, you're telling me that nothing can separate me from Christ? You mean none of this can remove me from the palm of his hand? And not even affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or kryptonite or monkey pox or coronavirus or nothing else? You mean none of that can separate me from Christ? You mean to tell me that no matter how high gas gets and how sick the nation becomes and how off the rails that morality goes and no matter all of that happened, do you mean to tell me that even through all of that because I have trusted in Him that none of that can separate me from God? And my answer is that's exactly what I mean because God is for you. 
you. He's for you. He's for me. Nobody can take away my salvation and send me to hell. I have, I have a lot of conversations. I had a conversation with somebody right after I got to the church. I have conversations with people who wonder about the doctrine of eternal security, which is what I'm talking about today, but let me explain it to you. And if that term isn't familiar to you, the doctrine of eternal security, it, you may hear it as once saved, always saved. You've heard that before, right? I have friends on the school bus. We used to argue about this all the time. And, and this term, now, now bear with me for a moment. Don't, don't type your email up yet. Bear with me. When I say once saved, always saved, it makes people nervous. And the reason that it makes people nervous is because they think that what I'm saying is that what you do doesn't matter. That's what people think. And I'm going to be honest with you, I've known a lot of people in my life that that's how they mean it. We, Rusty worked with a lady, and I, would not, I doubt that she would even know who I'm, we're talking about even if she watched this, but I won't say her name. But Rusty worked with a lady, uh, and her son was my age. I graduated high school with him. That narrows it down to about 65 people. Uh, but it, I went to school with him, and, and I don't know a nice way to say it, but he lived like the devil. I could tell you some of the stuff he did. Some of it would not be appropriate for me to say in the pulpit. Let's just say he lived like the devil. There was nothing about his life that would make you believe that he had any idea who Jesus was. Are you all with me so far? But what his, his mother would tell Rusty, they worked together at their bank, she told her one day, she said, well, I had him baptized when he was a kid, so I know everything's okay. Because once you're saved, you're always saved. Now listen, when I say that I believe in the doctrine of eternal security, I don't believe that. Are you with me? I don't want anybody to leave here and say, well, Noah says that what you do don't matter. Because that's not what I'm teaching. It makes people nervous because when I say that, you think I mean this. Well, you can do anything you want, sin in any way, live your life however you want, and it doesn't matter, you're still going to be saved. And that's not palatable for most people, and I want you to know unequivocally it's not palatable for me either. That's not what I believe. I do not believe that that's what the Word teaches. Here's what I'm preaching to you, and what, if I could, if there's any doctrine in Scripture today that I could write personally on your heart that you would cling to and never give up, it would be this one. Because there is freedom in this when you rightly understand it. What I'm preaching to you today and what I believe the message of Romans 8, what I believe that God is for you means is that once you are born again, once you are saved, then you never after that moment lose your salvation. Now here's where the underline goes. Once you are born again. Not, well, I, I, I said a prayer, I repeated something. You know, when I was at youth camp one day and I said a prayer and the preacher said, repeat after me, and I did that. Well, okay, do you go to church? No. Uh, do you pray? Well, sometimes, well, usually before I go to sleep and over food. Um, do, do you read the Word? Well, it, it's been a while. You go to church? No. See, I don't believe that means that that person was ever saved. And I know this is hard. I told Jay, I'm going to wade out in the deep end of the pool this morning. I know this is difficult, but I propose this to you, that when people have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, now listen to me very carefully, when you have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and here's what I mean, when something gets a hold of you that soap can't wash off, when something gets a hold of you, and, and the Old Testament, they called it a fire shut up in your bones. When you get a fire that's shut up in your bones, when the Holy Spirit washes over you and you realize that all the junk that you did in the past has now been forgiven 
been forgiven and laid at the foot of the cross and your debt's been paid and you become changed and you begin to live your life in a manner that reflects who you belong to. Those kind of people, church, I believe this with all my heart, those kind of people don't lose their salvation. They keep marching toward eternity. That's what I believe. I believe that that's got to be true. And let me illustrate it for you one more time. This is probably not what you thought you were going to get and God is for you. Let me illustrate it one more time. One more thing. I have a family member. Y'all don't know him. Uh, I have a family member that they have, they have children that are a little bit younger than mine, not much, a few years. And we were at a, a family function one time, and uh, one of the kids, I don't even remember exactly what they did, but one of the kids did something really dumb. I mean, now, of course, I never did anything like that. Uh, <laughs> and y'all didn't either. But they did something really dumb, and I heard his mother tell him, now you go repent of that right now. Because what would happen if on the way home we had a car wreck, you'd go to hell if you didn't repent from that right now. Now see, that's why understanding your salvation matters. That's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you today because I grew up, and and, and I will tell you this, I don't know that my mom and dad ever told me this. I just learned it in the church that we went to. So don't y'all don't look at my mom and dad. I don't think they ever told me this. I do a lot of dumb stuff that they didn't teach me, by the way. But that's what I thought. Y'all heard me joke about I've been saved 463 times? Anybody been saved more than that? <laughs> my dad? I have. I mean, when I was growing up, I, I repent. I, I mean, I, I still think you repent, but I'm just saying, they'd ask who, you know, who prayed the prayer and wants to be saved? Me. And then I'm the, every youth event, they add me to the number. Yeah, we had four saved, Noah, and I was always saved again. Because I wanted to make sure that there was nothing that had separated me from God. I wanted to make sure that there was nothing in my life that was unclean. Because I wanted to know that I was going to heaven. But here's what, here's what the message of Romans 8. And you'll under, when you read it, you'll know that I'm telling you the truth. Because he, he says, can depth or height or sword or danger or peril or anything else, can that separate you? And then God says, I sent my son for you. Now what makes you think that when I sent my son to die for you, and then I gave you the Holy Spirit, that I would just so flippantly take it back. And, and what this does, and you, please don't leave here and misunderstand this, what this does is that thing where Jesus says, take my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what that means? The Jews, they looked at the law as being a yoke that was good. They loved to yoke people. That just means to weigh you down. That's what oxen would use to pull the, to pull the sled. They like to use the law to weigh you down. And Christ comes, He says, listen, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And here's what, he, here's what that means. He is going to sacrifice Himself for you. And now your responsibility is to accept that sacrifice, trust in the Holy Spirit, and then you begin to live a Christian life from this point until you die. And if you come to me and you say, well, no, I got this friend and he went to church for so and so many years and then he did that and now he, you know, he's off living like the devil and he's, you know, he's... I started to say, I started to really get in trouble there. I, I, thank you, Lord, for that. It, you know, he, he's living like he's never even heard of, the, heard of Jesus. Well, guess what? Here's what I would tell you. I don't think he was ever saved. And people argue with me about that, but here's why I believe that way. I, and I'm going to say it again and I'm not doing this just to like stir up your fire, but here's why I believe that. Because the Spirit does something in you. You can't stay dead when the Holy Spirit comes around. 
You can't stay dead. I mean, in Romans chapter 8, just keep reading in Romans. Oh, go home and read Romans 8. And, and you'll begin to, I think what I'm telling you will make sense. He says in Romans 8 verse 11 that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And if it dwells in you, then He will quicken your mortal body. And that word quicken is just an old English word that means to make warm. In other words, your coldness, your dead body becomes alive. Some say that verse is actually talking about the resurrection at the end day. It doesn't matter whether it's the end day or whether He's talking about salvation now. The point is that when Jesus comes around, stuff don't stay dead. Unless He says, I'm cursing you, fig tree. and eh, that's not good. Stuff don't stay dead. See, that this doctrine of eternal security is not meant for those. And, and make sure, even if you still disagree with me, at least hear this. The doctrine of eternal security is not meant for those to use it as a license to sin. It's not that. And if anybody that you know takes it that way, then I'm just going to tell you I don't believe they're saved. And, and here's why. I'll say this too. Here's why I say what I'm saying to you, church. Because I believe that people who are looking to get as close to hell as they can without missing heaven, they're really not saved to begin with. And if you today are seeing, if I can get that toe just as close enough to the devil as I can, if I can just get as close over there as I can so that I don't get in trouble with God, I'm just going to tell you I'm not sure you're saved. Because the regenerated soul, it longs to be in fellowship with God. And it longs to be, uh, to be spiritually in tune with Jesus. And it longs to grow in faith. And that's what it looks like to be a Christian. And when you're a Christian in that manner, when you have truly found the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, there's not a devil in hell that can take that away from you. Not one. And, and I know most of you pretty well. Some I know better than others. And I can tell you, and not because I'm a pastor. This is just because I'm a Christian. I think you can do this too. I can get around some people that I can see it in their eyes. And, and I don't mean like literally I'm seeing it. But I mean I can see in their countenance. And I can hear in the way they speak whether or not they love the Lord. I can tell. How about you? You ever run across somebody like that? I, I'll tell you a super quick story. Rusty's mom and dad, I wish you guys could have known them. You know, we lost her dad to COVID about a year and a half ago. And her mom's doing pretty good. Maybe, maybe you can get to know her sometime. But uh, two of the sweetest people that I've ever known. I, I told my mother-in-law, I said, I call, we call her Nana. I said, Nana, I got cheated. She said, well, how'd you get cheated? I said, well, at work, everybody makes fun of their mother-in-law but I like you so much I can't do it. I said, I'd feel guilty even though I don't mean I'd feel guilty, so I ain't even going to talk about my mother-in-law. I don't think I've ever told a mother-in-law joke. Mom, Rusty hadn't told any mother-in-law jokes either. <laughs> They're sweetest people I know. Well, they were at, a, at the hospital. Rusty, um, her parents adopted a severely handicapped boy, brought him home from the hospital, and he was wheelchair-bound and... and uh, feeding tube, and he never actually, he never spoke. They told him he'd live, I don't remember, three or four years, and he, he made it 18. Um, that was because of Rusty's mother because she loved him so much. But they were at a hospital appointment with him, and some people came up. They were in a waiting room. Some people came up to him and said, you two are Christians, aren't you? And they hadn't even talked to him. Well, yeah, he said, yeah, I'm a pastor. And she says, I, and she looked at the other nurse. She said, I told you they were. I knew there was something different. And I just tell you that story because... Christian people that love the Lord, they're not the ones that are just saying, well, how much devil can I get and still be saved? Because the people that are doing that, that's not what the doctrine of eternal security was about. You all follow me? 
That's not what it was about. The promise that God is for us is not a promise that will elude trouble. It's a promise that Christ's atoning sacrifice is sufficient to bring you to heaven. That's what it means. That's what it means. Verse 35 through 39, I'm going to just read those to you again. You don't even have to put the slides up. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, can any of those? No. As it is written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Why? Because God is for you. So rejoice today. We can rejoice because the one that we've trusted in, and I love this, the one that we have trusted in has guaranteed by blood to bring you to where he is. He guaranteed it with his own blood. Your salvation is afforded you through the blood of Christ alone. And it is through this blood alone that we gain access to God. And nothing can separate us from the blood. Nothing. Y'all remember that song? uh, That... The, about the blood, of, I, I had the words, the blood of Jesus. Uh, I literally just lost it. I was actually going to sing it to you. Yeah, 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 nothing but the blood. I, I, I literally it vanished. Verse 37 of Romans 8 calls us more than conquerors, and that just really means that you and I are completely victorious over sin. And Christ is the one that guaranteed our victory. I want to I wanna read you a quote. Bruce Barton in the, the Life Application Commentary, he says this about... This passage, he says, alongside the theme of glory in the Christian life is the theme of victory. We get to be on the winning side, though our contribution is almost insignificant. We are protected by a God whose love cannot be measured and from which, as Paul eloquently explains, absolutely nothing can separate us. Isn't that good? We're on the winning side, though our contribution is insignificant. We are protected by a God whose love cannot be measured and from which, as Paul explains, nothing can separate us. God is for you, church, as a promise to safely see you into heaven and an eternal dwelling with our Savior. That's what this promise means. A man named Croft Pence, he says, Jesus took our place so that we might have his peace, and he took our sin that we might have salvation. So how much is God for us? He's for us so much that he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the premise of the message. That's what Romans 8 is about. That's what we're going to talk about for four weeks is this promise that He is going to carry us through this life and bring us safely to heaven to be with Him. And, and I, the reason I feel so passionate about this, and I think I've really already said this, but the reason I feel so passionate about this is because like that story I told you about my family member talking to their kid, if you don't believe this doctrine, then, what, then how you're living is that every time you make a mistake, if you don't repent of it right in that instant, and something happened to you 30 seconds later, a lifetime of faithful service, a lifetime, this is your interpretation, a lifetime of faithful service and living for the Lord is erased by one mistake. And, and, and see, you know intuitively that can't be true. It doesn't even make any sense. And my argument with this doctrine has always been, 
at least when I was growing up, the Baptist church, they taught eternal security and the Pentecostal church, they taught the other way. And my experience has been neither one of them understood it. Because my friend was a Baptist and he pretty much just said, yeah, you just do whatever you want, don't matter. And I was the other way and I said, um, you said stupid. We, Lindsay, we didn't let our kids, we didn't let our kids say, I'm just going to spell it because it's funnier. We didn't let our kids say B-U-T-T. It just doesn't sound good for a three-year-old girl to say that. Y'all know what I mean, right? Little girls are too cute to be saying B-U-T-T. Well, if you just said this, I was going to go to the fall festival, but I had to go to work. Um... Dad, you said, and this is how she said, Dad, you said E-T-T. <laughs> so, if you don't believe what I'm telling you this morning, then for you, when you say E-T-T, oops. And really, church, doesn't it make sense as I'm telling you this? Doesn't it make sense that that doesn't make sense? Doesn't it make sense that that doesn't make sense? Nor does it make sense to believe that Nothing you do matters. That doesn't make sense either. That's stupid. I said that in church. I said ETT. Samantha was over at Rebecca and Dave's one time, and she got back. We told her to go over and come back, and she was gone like an hour. And when she came back, we said, oh, we told you to come back in five minutes. How come you didn't, how come you took you so long? She said, Dad, I got subtracted. what you do matters here's what I want you to go home with today church and I hope that I hope I've challenged you today I hope that I have hope that I have challenged you to read Romans 8 to study it for yourself to see if what I've told you is true Uh, you know I I believe that it's a profound truth Um, and and I learned it the hard way and for me it came when I faced my trial that's when I began to understand the deeper things of the, of the Lord. And so, you know, I, it's hard for me to say that I, would, that I would choose to be sick again. That would be hard for me to say, but I can tell you this. I feel like I'm here today because of what I went through. And, and I think what I went through, it formed me and it shaped me into who I am today. And you may not think of much of who I am today, but I, but I am grateful for who I am. And I'm especially grateful for the promise in Romans 8.31 that if God is for you, who can be against you? And so what you can cling to, what you can cling to, is, Lord, I love you with all my heart and I'm serving you. And I ask you to to help me to draw closer to you and to become all that you would have me be. And, Lord, I'm trusting you with my soul. My favorite verse in Scripture is 2 Timothy 1.12. And it says, I know in whom I have believed. And he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And what that means is, to me, this is what that means. I've trusted you and and I trust you to bring me to where you are. That's what this means. This doesn't mean that you're going to make all, you're going to be a millionaire. It doesn't mean you're not ever going to get sick. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to like your jokes. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to like your preaching. It doesn't mean everybody's going to like your church. It doesn't mean you're even going to have any friends. What it does mean is that you have a Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you that has got you, got a hold of you, and He will bring you to where He is. It's all through the Scripture. You read it all the time. You've just never seen it this way. Jesus even says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I'll come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am there, you may be also. 
In my father's house are many mansions, right? See, what's he saying? He says, listen, 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 son. This is how he talks to me. Listen, son. I'm building the house. I'm getting it ready for you. And I'm going to make sure that you securely make it to where I am. Isn't that good news? And see, what that'll do for a believer is, man, you'll stand up a little straighter. And you'll realize, okay, every time I make a little mistake, God didn't throw me in the trash. I repent and I move on. I didn't say we don't repent. We do that. Don, I do a lot of that. I might repent today for something. Depends on how cornhole goes. I don't know. I, I, I hope you're blessed by this. I, if I could get the worship team. I hope today's message blessed you. I hope that you understand maybe a little bit more about what it means that God is for you. Maybe that that, that has... I hope that something I said today challenged you. If you don't understand it, if you, if you disagree with me, if you want to talk to me about it, come see me. My door is always open. Um, we'll talk about it. I love talking about the Lord, about the Word. But I want you to experience freedom in Christ. I want you to know what Galatians 5.1 means to stand fast, to stand firm in the liberty where Christ has made you free. That's what this is all about. The whole New Testament is about God being for you. Every story you read in the New Testament is about God being for you. God being for you is the message of the New Testament. That's what it is. So next three Sundays, I'm going to preach again next Sunday. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, exactly. I've got a couple things in mind. And then um, uh, Chris is going to preach the third week, and then I'll be back on the fourth week. Uh, so we're going to do God is for you all all, month, all the month of June, and I hope what we get out of this is we're going to finish out June. We're going to be closer to the Lord than we were when we started. Amen.